Welcome to In Our Own Defense Podcast. We're your host, attorney A.D. Winters, founder and managing attorney for VeteransDefender.com, and Dr. Dolores Tarver, licensed psychologist. For more information about our podcast, go to In Our Own Defense on Instagram or via email at inourowndefense at gmail.com. The mission of In Our Own Defense is to share truths and create dialogue while increasing listeners' awareness of mental health concerns, as well as allowing them to create a holistic wellness plan and have realistic action plans to encourage wellness and goal attainment. The In Our Own Defense podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for the care of healthcare professionals. Instead, all information, content, and materials is just for general information purposes only. Well, welcome to In Our Own Defense again, Dr. Tarver. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, uh, I'm really excited about today's show. We have a lot going on in America um, and in our own defense podcast. It's it's the golden opportunity today to really kind of tackle a lot that's happening to kind of have this discussion and not just aimless, you know, observations of things. We want to look at things a bit deeper. Uh, as we always do, um, race has been has, has been highlighted a lot to me as I'm seeing this through the prism of as an African American man. But as an American, I'm noticing how race has come to the forefront again, uh, even in COVID nineteen. As we deal with a pandemic, um, there's racial disparities as we deal with it. Um, I've noticed. Uh, there's a difference in racial treatment as when when some African-Americans are violating the stay-at-home orders or the shelter-in-place orders versus how, uh, you know, other races are being treated. They're being treated as they're just using their First Amendment rights. They're just speaking. Uh, This is their way of freedom of expression. This is their ability to do that as as valued Americans versus African-Americans doing it in their own way. Um, they're being looked on as, as some felons. Uh, there's there's point of order on that is there's some examples. Um, there in Chicago recently that was there was a huge house party that was thrown with but apparently 300 and some odd people that was there. And as a result of that party, you know, Twitterverse, the the mayor of Chicago, uh, the the law enforcement community there in the Chicagoland area. Uh, it was a lot of finger pointing, a lot of discouragement, a lot of uh, pain and grief brought upon these guys, rightfully so. I think we're in a pandemic, safety, health uh, is everybody's responsibility, uh, rightfully so. But I've, I've just noticed the difference in the treatment from uh, like a pastor Tony Spell there in Baton Rouge area in central uh, of, of Baton Rouge, a greater Baton Rouge area, East Baton Rouge Parish. Uh, this pastor keeps, you know, having church when he's been told over and over and over again, uh, please don't do this. He's been arrested, uh, you know, been held in contempt of court. He's been put on house arrest and he continues uh, to have that. And there's, there's a mix of, well, he's a crazy person for doing this. Uh, and then everybody's, you know, the people are being accepting of as if this is his First Amendment right and freedom of expression. Um, and, and, and these things are kind of, they're really trying to me most recently in the, Memphis, uh, the Michigan uh, State House, armed um, 
white men protesting went inside the state house and these protests have been popping up throughout the country about open america back up open economy back up um and i'm concerned just at a simple level like this why is there such a big um uh disparity in the view of that immensely why do why do we perceive that as different what's the difference between those these young people in chicago having their version of a protest party versus these people protesting without mask in the state house where the laws are being made what what's the difference there i think there's just a lot of factors at play right now i mean you're getting into the psychology of racism um there was a book written in uh, 76 by uh robert guthrie and it was called even the rap was white and it it talked about the um origins kind of western psychology and this notion that um black people are inferior and it allowed people to draw racist conclusions about black people were seen as uh, savage primitive sexualized um ignorant overly religious but in kind of a blind allegiance way um that we that we practice all these uh, superstitions that were shady we're slow we're lazy um we have all these uh, multiple relationships with people and the darker the person is the more negative those attributes were and and i think what we're seeing right now is is that playing out where people have negative perceptions of black people even if you look at a, a black lives matter movement uh and what came out of that it wasn't that um these are these are protests about um social injustices um the way that black people in particular um are often treated by officers in a different way than 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 lighter skinned people are in particular um it it became about oh you hate cops so you hate um other people uh and so there's just such a linear way that we look at things and so as we're we're taking a look at these protesters now we're we're doing the same thing so they're white um right white is right uh we have we have heard that before if you if you have white blood in you you're viewed in a different way you're coming from a place of oh you want to um as you say protect your liberties as opposed to you're trying to hurt other people you're not being safe you're actually bringing more harm to people in here you're in here with guns um black people will be perceived as a, as a threat black people even even when we wear masks to stores there's still people are uncomfortable with us cuz again there's still these images of us in this this very negative way that we're going to harm you in some way that when you see us you need to move out of the way particularly black men um or or our brown brothers and sisters um so I, I think that a lot of it is really that piece these these racial views that we have that are coming out in people um and we're seeing them play out on on a stage because uh, oftentimes our uh, political leaders are are making that divide they're saying hey um there's some very fine people on 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 both sides uh they are allowing white supremacists to 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 protest um and and say they're expressing their rights um but they're saying hey we need to we need to crack down on on black people so we're we're at a point where we're um talking more about racism and 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 culture and disparities in the news and in this pandemic is highlighting it all and i think our our guest um uh Dr. Ori is going to be really helpful in in talking about this. He has done some some work on the Confederate flag um and and uh biases and values and he's looking at mental health now uh with this pandemic and how we're affected by trauma. So I think he's going to be able to help us have this this good conversation. And I'm glad you bring up our guest uh Dr. Ori. I'm really excited to 
you know, kind of bring them in. Uh, you know, this is a noted, very accomplished, um, you know, young man. So I'm really excited about bringing him in. Um, so uh, we should bring him on. Let's let's bring him on to the show. So uh, in this episode of In Our Own Defense podcast, uh, we have the astute, analytical, academic genius, Dr. Byron DeAndre Ori. Uh, he's joining the show to discuss politics of COVID-19 pandemic, and he's going to delve into these disparities. So I'm really excited to see this. Uh, so Dr. Tarby, if you don't mind, why don't you introduce him? Absolutely. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Byron DeAndre Ori, who earned a BS degree from Mississippi Valley State University, a master's from the University of Mississippi and the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and a PhD from the University of New Orleans. He has taught at the University of Mississippi, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and currently teaches at Jackson State University, where, is he, where is, he is professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science. During the 2003-2004 academic year, he was selected as a Gallup professor by the Gallup organization. His research is in the area of race and politics, biopolitics, and legislative behavior. He has published over 30 scholarly articles and book chapters. He is the recipient of the Jewel Presage Teacher of the Year and the Rodney Higgins Mentor Awards from the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, TESS, Academic Exchange, the Palestinian American Research Center, and he has worked with colleagues through a grant for the University of California, Irvine, for undergraduates to participate in a summer research program. He also has received a grant in coordination with the University of Michigan to establish a formal collaboration with JSU's political science department. That is absolutely impressive uh, to see all of this work that's been done by this man. And so come on on the show, uh, Dr. Ori, uh, welcome to our show. Woo! Hey, <laughs> hey, thank you all for thank having you. me tonight. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here with us. Um, so, you know, Dr. Tarver, let's let's dive into the show. Why don't, why don't you ask him the first question? I feel like I've talked a lot. Okay, so, uh, Dr. Ori, we've you know, as you, you've been here with us, we've been talking about uh, these racial disparities that we we've, we've noticed, and this is typical of America. This is just you can't talk about America without talking about uh, the racial disparities that exist, but particularly in this pandemic. We're noticing that it has been linked to an increased xenophobia, racially disparaging statements, most recently highlighted the disparities in uh, access to services, accurate diagnosis and treatment, and comorbidities in communities with limited resources, um, whether it's the, the cost and access to health care, the, the prior access to health care, which has put them in these uh, the comorbidities. Um, what are some of the ways race and socioeconomic statuses have been highlighted during the, the pandemic that, that you perceive? Well, um, I was listening to Dr. Tarver when you all um, were introducing the show. And, you know, it reminded me of what Kathy Cohen, um, a political scientist at the University of Chicago, said. She said, negative stereotypes of African-Americans have great staying power. And so these negative stereotypes that, you know, we are witnessing now are, you know, negative stereotypes that have been around, you know, forever. I mean, you know, some people suggest that, you know, folk have these implicit biases now. And, and that is true. 
because of the way that folks have been socialized in America to watch the media, um, to embrace negative stereotypes of the past, um, and simply not being exposed because of segregation to other outgroups, uh, they develop these uh, non-conscious biases. But there are also these explicit biases, and these explicit biases um, have become, you know, more frequent in terms of us being able to observe them uh, with this current president. Uh, when you go back to Charlottesville, for example, I heard Dr. Tarver talk about, you know, how in Virginia you had, you know, these white supremacists who ended up killing someone who was there, you know, on the other side protesting. And, you know, as she indicated, the president, you know, essentially um, snapped both of them on the wrist at the same time, even though, you know, a death occurred uh, and it was a direct function of uh, the xenophobia and out-and-out -out racism where one group perceives itself to be supreme, supreme relative to the other group. One thing that I think uh, that has come out of this uh, are the disparities as it relates to healthcare and the pre-existing conditions, if you will. Um, that's not exactly how I would state it, but the fact that you know African-Americans do possess some of these uh, ailments that help to exacerbate um, or the potential of death as relates to the COVID-19, uh, we're not talking about, you know, the structural barriers that exist and why these um, African-Americans are um, dying at higher rates. And so if you take a place like Mississippi, where I'm from, in Mississippi, you have these food deserts in the city. And then, you know, if you take a place like the Mississippi Delta, and it could be any other rural area, but Mississippi Delta, because I went to, you know, the mighty Mississippi Valley State University. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll use the Mississippi Delta. And I was actually born in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And so if you leave Greenwood, Mississippi, which is about 50 miles from Clarksdale, and you drive the Blues Trail, um, going, you know, 49 north. During that drive, you'll see all of the plantations that existed and where all of the cotton, you know, produced out of Mississippi were produced in that very, very rich soil in the Mississippi Delta. What you won't find mm. is a grocery store. A con you will find a convenience store that's a gas station and they'll have fried food or, you know, whatever you can uh, put together, um, you know, as, as a fast food. And, and that's relatively speaking in terms of it being a fast food. Uh, I don't think it's a fast food. Fast food means they put, the, you know, put it together fast. This is probably food that's, that's actually mm -hmm. been there for a while. So you literally don't, I mean, you don't have any choices. Um, you know, you drive about 10 miles to that convenience store when you live out in rural Mississippi and the other point uh, is as it relates to, you know, healthcare. The healthcare piece, because of the rural hospitals, there are a lot of rural hospitals that are closing now. And so people literally have to go, I say 30, 40 miles, you know, to get uh, healthcare. And, you know, when, when you're talking about driving probably the oldest car 
Uh, so you're talking about gas. Um, you don't have jobs between the place, you know, the examples I just gave, you know, from Highway 49 on up, you know, to 61 in, 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 in Clarksdale, you know, coming from Greenwood Park, 40 miles, there's no economic development. And there was no economic development since, you know, slavery. And so you had slavery, and then you went to the plantations where you had the sharecroppers, and then, you know, people started to migrate, you know, to the north. But there was never, where those plantations are located, there was never any economic development in those areas. And so here you have, the, you know, the, 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 the relatives of, you know, previous um, slave workers in that area, uh, the lineage there, and, you know, some of the same conditions still persist. And so this, this pandemic has simply accentuated, um, you know, the issues that were already prevalent. As a follow-up, I, I see that, you know, and, and what's, you know, what's telling uh, uh, Dr. Ori is that it's not just that same mirror that you're referring to in the, in the, in the South, Mid-South and the Mississippi Blues Belt. It, it really is the same in the Rust Belt from Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, just take Toledo, for example. You go there and, and the black community has that same food desert, that's the same lack of access. Uh, when you take those big industrious jobs away, then that those communities are left really generationally because that's the only place they know. Their home has lost all value. So it, when you're doing the property transfer, that that has lost its significance. But that's fascinating. And I think that that story is being played out across the United States, particularly the African-American communities. Barbara? Um, you didn't have a question in there, did you, Attorney no, Winters? No, I, I was just, I was liking that. I was <laughs> following up okay, that, just... it was, that, it, that it happens in other parts of the country that I've seen. Just want to make sure. Just want to make sure I didn't overlook a, a question in there. Okay. Um, you know, I, Dr. Ori, you have, um, you know, highlighting this piece about our lack of resources. Why haven't they built, been built up? Um, right. So if, if we look at it from... Um, this dynamic of I don't want certain groups to have resources. I don't want people to be able to survive and, and, and continue to access things because of my fear of what might happen if I allow them to have access to the food they need, if I allow them to have access to the resources they need. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious and insecure, possibly, about my own mortality. And so what I want to do is make sure that I keep a certain group um, from being able to, in my opinion, take control of me or be able to have access to the things that I have access to uh, because then possibly it may limit my access. Um, what are some of the reasons why you think that those areas haven't been built up? Like we're talking about um, decades and decades and decades have passed. These areas have not changed. Uh, is it is because our political leaders have not required these areas to have to have changed? Is that we have not invested in this? We have not seen this as as useful uh, because maybe those groups are not seen as valuable. Um, 
that they don't have anything to add to go back to that whole stereotypes that are still being in place now? Like, what are some of the reasons why you think those areas have not been grown up? How how we still have those disparities? Well, I think um, the root to all of this evil, um, there are two. And one of them is dehumanization of black mm. folks. And so, I, you know, I heard you mention um, some of the research in the 1970s in terms of the negative stereotypes. But, you know, when we talk about these non-conscious as well as you know, implicit, as well as explicit um, negative racial attitudes, uh, you know, there have been studies in implicit bias that show that, you know, people associate black people with monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's based on your non-conscious so it's how fast you respond uh, as to whether or not the image that you just saw was black person or white person so on and so forth and you know there were the cases where uh, you know you had people to associate African Americans with, with, with monkeys and the point that I'm making here is that when you dehumanize um, someone mm-hmm. they're less than human mm-hmm. and so you know their chattel slavery back then uh, their property and even with you know poor whites, you know there's a there's a rebellion that took place that people don't really talk about, uh, and that's Bacon Rebellion, um, 1600s I believe it was, but this was when the the differences were really um, accentuated between poor whites and blacks. So you know they were blacks were indentured servants, poor whites were indentured servants, and you know one day they returned and they were armed and so they turned the guns on the elite farmers who were outnumbered and so at that point uh, it became a realization that we need to separate the two and in separating the two the poor whites realized that hey I might be poor but I'm not black Mm. and so when you look at the dehumanization of black people uh, that continues uh, to you know exist today and the other piece is education and the lack you know the lack of opportunity as it relates to quality education um, the primary schools or post-secondary schools the allocation of fundings to these uh, schools and, and universities have uh, been extremely uh, disproportionate relative to these predominantly white schools. And what you end up getting then is, you know, some individuals who come out and, you know, their degrees are not, you know, recognized as, you know, serious diplomas or or they're not considered to be uh, well-educated. So this puts them in a category. It puts them in a category where, you know, ultimately these negative biases uh, prevent them from, you know, achieving uh, higher employment opportunities. But to go back to your point in terms of um, the sheltering, if you will, of these uh, masks and whatnot, you know, this goes back to just the fear and threat mm-hmm. that black people have always posed mm-hmm. on white mm-hmm. people. And so if you take a place again, I'll go back to the Mississippi Delta, you know, in areas where there are high concentration of blacks, this is where you saw the most lynchings take place. This is where you saw um, efforts to uh, dis- disenfranchise black people because there was this threat. There was a fear that black people would take over. 
Mississippi and come to total fruition, uh, black people did gain the right to vote and they exercised that right to vote. And now they have the largest number of black elected officials in the country. Um, so there is a fear that because of scarcity of resources, that, you know, it's a zero sum game. If you give to blacks, that means mm -hmm. you take away mm -hmm. from whites. And there is an in-group, out-group dyna dynamic here. I mean, you know, ethnocentrism exists where, you know, you have in-group favoritism and out-group derogation or out-group disdain. And, you know, that, that simply is mm -hmm. just a norm. And I think America. it has a lot to do with, um, there's this concept, uh, and, and I want to pose this to both of you guys. I, I'm sure you guys have heard it. Uh, Dr. Ori and Dr. Tarver, there's this concept called ownership, interest, and whiteness. Uh, from a legal from a legal perspective, owning something has a lot has to do with our property rights. So if if we go back to the founders of the the what we know as American government um, when it was taken from Native Americans, the uh, the founders of this concept of a country, um, you know, articulated that that ownership um, as a as a function you know property and real and uh, is is based on the value of things you know uh, because native americans didn't want to own the land they didn't want to keep it the land but you know um this concept that was brought from england was was manifested in the, that you embrace everything to which a man may have uh, attached a value to then you tie it into a right so such so jane madison so the ownership interest in whiteness is a concept that, like you guys are referring to, the lighter the color of your skin, that has a little bit of value. Pure whiteness has a has a certain amount of value, and and it was it was best articulated in the book uh, by Professor uh, Cheryl Harris, the law professor at UCLA. Uh, she wrote wrote this seminal book called Whiteness as a Property. Um, whiteness as a property. So as she articulates in her book. Uh, she talks about the significant role of that production and that that acclamation where people try to own in and claim that that um, that ownership interest in that whiteness. Uh, that was something that the Supreme Court alluded to when you talk about these generations and years and years. Uh, the Supreme Court on Monday just made a ruling um, in Ramos versus Louisiana about the unanimity of the jury that there has to be a unanimous jury for you know major crimes uh as it were and so the the court voted ultimately six to three uh written by judge uh justice gorsuch uh which was a weird dynamic justice gorsuch who was conservative justice uh clarence thomas who is who is stalwart conservative agreed and lined up with ruth bader uh, RBG and so uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, some of the others and so it was a really interesting dynamic but what the so what of it the court talks about the history of where these laws came from the court spoke to how Louisiana's law that that said 10 to 2 jury was based solely on race uh, Oregon was the only other state that had it and theirs was based based solely on race but a heavy KKK influence in Oregon and in Louisiana, when the Reconstruction era happened, uh, and after that was over, Louisiana, the turn of the century, 1898, Louisiana started turning the tide on um, uh, 
the this racial issue because all of these African Americans were getting a, a massive voting block. Louisiana had the first black governor, uh, you know, uh, Henry uh, Pinchback. So when you having when you had those those kind of situations, they were making sure that they were going to keep their power base. So how do you do it? You incarcerate uh, these African Americans. Well, the population won't allow you to have a unanimous. So we don't need una- unanimity. All we can do is 10 to 2. So with the population base, you knew if you can ward off some of them from coming to jury, then you could get that 10 to 2 verdict. And so they kept it in place from early 1900 and it was just struck down in 2020. And the U.S. Supreme Court says we know race was the basis of it. Uh, some of the some of the, 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 the justices argued that, oh, it's going to be too uh, too costly to go and overturn that of Louisiana, even though the citizens of Louisiana have just voted to make it go forward. The court needed to make it retroactive that if their case is still available, uh, that these people should have a fair say by having a unanimous jury convict them, which is a lot tougher than having a 10 um, out of 12. And so with this ownership of, with the backdrop of that question, I want to pose to both of you. First, you, Dr. Tarver, is the ownership interest in whiteness, do you believe that it's, it, it is it's being revealed today as it relates to this COVID-19? I mean, definitely, because the the narrative that is being presented um, politically, right? Um, and so if you have the p- political control of the knowledge that comes out, then you can you can skew people's perspectives. Uh, Wade Nobles um, talked about ways that we put out information to alter people's perceptions. Um, we can simply falsify information. So whatever I want that narrative to be, white is right. Um, uh, white people are stronger, they're safer, uh, they are better in leadership. Um, if I want to have some kind of modification of the information where I destroy or distort um, the original information. So as Dr. Ori was talking about, hey, once you all get uh, more rights to vote and you get more elected officials, then you make more changes in your community. So let me let me distort that information. Let me let me delete that information. Uh, and, and make you perceive that that's not something that's actually a possibility. Uh, and then also what I will tell you instead to replace that information with is, is white Republican leadership is the best leadership for you. It gives you uh, what you want. I put a select few black people, some black celebrities, some black pastors up, and I, and I have them agree with my points on that um, and, and, and point you uh, to information that allows you to only be able to have access to that in your, in your news feed. So you're having constant um, barrages of information that support white is better, that supports these stereotypes that we've been talking about of black people. Um, specifically, we'll get into even even women. Uh, you're women. You're 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 too sensitive. You're uh, um, you you get to be um, too bossy. You get to be too um, several other choice words. Yeah. Um, right. You're aggressive. You have all these attitudes. So we don't we don't want. And as as we start looking at information, we're no longer looking at the factual information anymore. Now we're based back to what Dr. Ori was talking about. Let me get at um, these implicit biases. Let me tear apart who you are in your character. I'll assassinate you character wise so that it can further institute my 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 point about white is better. Uh, so you want white. You want to go, right? We do this all the time. I want to go to um, white business owners because I can't trust black business owners. Mm. They're shady. Um, 
I, I want to go to an institution that uh, finances white people because the black banks, they might go under. They don't have the same um, amount of time that they've been in business. And if something happens, they won't be able to take a take a hit. Uh, and so there's constant examples of this information that is presented to us. And we believe it to be true because we, again, if we don't have information um, to access that says otherwise, then we become prisoners of that information that is presented to us. That's 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 a but it's fact. So, Dr. Ori, what what do you think? You think that re- relates to some of the research you guys are pulling in your Gallup polls? Is that something you see what Dr. Tarver is saying? Well, it's something that Dr. Tarver mentioned that made me think about some of the more recent work. It's not COVID nineteen related, but in terms of um, how African Americans internalize. Uh, these negative stereotypes that exist in the country uh, about African Americans. There is, uh, you know, a bit of uh, hope in a study that we just did looking at colorism and heritage. And what we found was among college students, um, they perceive the dark woman with more Afrocentric features, which included hairstyle being, you know, twist outs or whatnot and dreads. They were as being more intelligent, uh, more likely to support, for example, black interests uh, or black issues, uh, support HBCUs. Um, dark woman was perceived to be more hardworking. And, you know, this flies in the face of, you know, prior uh, literature, you know, going back to uh, Kenneth Manning and, and, and his wife. Uh, and so, you know, that does lend itself to some hope because, you know, African Americans internalize these same negative stereotypes. Uh, you know, we've done some work on police bias. And we found that, you know, those black police officers who have negative biases, uh, against other African Americans are more likely to shoot unarmed African Americans um, when compared to, uh, for example, African Americans who have strong racial identity. And so we have a simulation that we use where it's a shooter don't shoot simulator. And you know, you even though it's a game that you're actually, you know, playing on the computer, psychologically, it's still information processing. So you have to make a decision whether you had a gun in your hand or not. We know that the adrenaline actually will, you know, be involved if you were actually in the real time. But you do still have to make a split second decision less than 500 milliseconds. Uh, But, you know, the point here is that, you know, the stronger the racial identity, the less likely they were to make errors in shooting blacks. But the stronger the resentment that they harbored against other blacks, um, the more likely they were to make errors. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it was refreshing to see that college students, African-American college students, uh, embraced uh, their Afrocentric features in terms of, you know, their perceptions of the uh, intellect and other characteristics associated with blacks based on... You know, Has there been a deeper study? Have you guys done any deeper, or do you know of any deeper research uh, was this one? Let me ask you first. Let me start with: Was that research done at an HBCU? 
Okay. Yes, so it was. Has there been any deeper, broader research on HBCUs collectively, and it, it, does that have lingering impacts across HBCUs? Because just personally, I feel, well, I think all three of us started our undergraduate careers. We, you know, our undergraduate process, we matriculated through, uh, through an HBCU. So the incredible pride that I feel comes from HBCUs, but I don't have any science to back that up. Do, do you believe uh, other research has been done across HBCUs that, that can be mimicked or, or, or speak to that same value? Um, you know, it's interesting you ask that question. We haven't done the analyses, but I okay. do have the data. So I actually, <laughs> I, I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm like the little old man that lives in a shoe. I got so much data. I don't know who <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, that's actually the, you know, that's the upside of being in that HBCU. Uh, when I was at the University of Nebraska, I'm getting sidetracked a little. When I, when I was at the University of Nebraska with Dr. Tarver, um, you know, when people were doing experiments, in research, they would have maybe one black person in the whole sample mm -hmm. um, because they couldn't find any blacks. Although, you know, if they'd ask me, I know where to find black folks in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. But in Jackson, you know, I walk around campus and subject, subject. Oh, you don't want to participate? Oh, next, subject, subject. I get a, you know, 300, 400 people within two weeks. Uh, but I did get some data from Howard that I have not analyzed. Uh, but you make a good point in terms of, you know, comparing those data. The one thing uh, as it relates to the research at an HBCU is that it mimics real closely to um, a predominantly black city. And so the takeaway would be if someone were to, you know, run for office, then, you know, Afrocentricity may actually have an impact in terms of the appearance. And so they should feel free to wear twist outs. They should feel free to wear natural hairstyles. Uh, but this was, you know, I think this was an extremely important finding because it does run counter, you know, to some of the prior studies where, you know, colorism research kind of leaned in the direction of, you know, lighter complexion uh, candidates in, in, in the political This is process. so fascinating, man. And I, and I hate taking a show, Dr. Tucker, but I'm, I'm just so inquisitive. I want to know more. So, so, Dr. Tarver, you you spoke to the women, you know, what, what African American women may be experiencing, what women may be experiencing as a whole, as in, you know, these these dumb these dumb value systems that says, "Oh, you're too ambitious because you're assertive and you you have drive toward a a, a, a goal and a plan that you can help the community and help yourself." Um, but there's something that I, that I find interesting in race within that piece you know we we spoke to what what it feels like to me that dr Ori is saying that the research may tend to lead that that there's becoming a new unquote woke wokeness uh that that says that there's an ownership interest in blackness because the you know the darker the beautiful uh fuller woolier texture of, of your hair and you wearing it like that means that you have a pride in the day of who you are and so that has a lot of value now. And I love to get the other truths from this and the deeper truths with all HBCUs. Uh, I know that's how we feel at the Southern University, but but I always pride myself in university, but there's something that just came recent, Dr. Tarver, I want to pose to you as we relate women to men as African-Americans relate to each other within this space, because I want to get back out to the 
African Americans where we exist in the whole, but but as we exist with each other, the internal racism, as Dr. Ori keeps referring to the how we internalize it, uh, and it's kind of gone viral. This young man has graduated. He's he's graduating. He graduated from Southern University Law Center, um, and he posts on Instagram. Uh, you know his elation. Um, and it sparked a lot of kind of back and forth. Uh, essentially, uh, Dr. Orin, Dr. Tarver, this young man, Instagram posts, CJ underscore is king. I, I uh, don't know this young man from Adam. I did not mentor him. I, I'm a giver at Southern University, so all that's, uh, I'm, I have a scholarship at Southern University Law Center, so I want to make sure that that's noted. But in his post, it says, uh, now that I'm JD bar number loading, and I guess that means that he's got to take the bar because you don't just get become a lawyer after graduate from law school. I've entered into a new arena of black men, and in this arena, I'm the prize now. Don't just uh, don't just take my word for it, though. And before you kill me in the comments, let me drop some stats for you uh, for your blank right quick so you see my point. Black women outnumber black men by two million. Black women don't want to deal with a black man who's gay slash down low, comma, has baby mama issues, comma, or has a felony conviction uh, slash record slash in jail, which collectively is a large percentage of our race. Unfortunately, statistically, 37 percent of black men are in jail, while one third of black men have some form of criminal record. I don't have anything to support these stats. I, I don't know where you're getting it from, but I'm reading this. Take it as for what I'm reading, not for the truth of it. Uh, black uh, women, back to the to the uh, to the post. Black women typically don't want to date down, quote unquote, and prefer to have a black man that is on the same playing field as her or higher. Comma. Well, statistically, only seven percent of black men are professionals. Uh, with this massive criteria that black women don't want. And when dating a black man, they have essentially drastically limited the dating pool of viable black men that majority of black women are currently after, which means everyone doesn't get picked. And statistically, 70% of black women go unmarried, uh, go unmarried. You see where I'm going here. And then he goes on. Additionally, black women want their mate to be attractive and blah, blah, blah. And they want edge and all of that. Then, So with me now gaining access to this very small percentage of black men that are young, for the record, I'm under 30 with two degrees, single and attractive, are heterosexual, are heterosexual, have no criminal record, no baby mama drama, and have some form of high playing, paying career potential that majority of black women are competing against each other for. You tell me who's the prize here, question mark, question mark, question mark. Dr. Tarver, first, if you can unpack all of that, I know that Ooh. is a lot. And I want to pose that the question to you too, Dr. That's Curry, a lot. Because like, Dr. Tarver, I'd like you to focus your energy on uh, what hurt this baby and why is if this baby is hurt, and I know you can't psychologically give us an assessment right. of somebody, A, you've never met, B, right. from a post that I've read, but but in that space, what theoretically could be wrong? And and Dr. Ori, from, from you, I just wanna know, are your, is your research leading you believe that there's some sort of 
there's a new break away from us as African Americans that we're so deeply entrenched in some sort of man versus woman issues. Uh, when I, for one, want to admit, black women have carried our day. And then I'm saying this to you, I really hardly believe that black women have carried our day since, since pretty much since we got here. You guys have protected us. And, and, and since we have been incarcerated at in a normal, uh, abnormal amount, black women have carried the day for, for our community as a whole. And so uh, I want to know from your perspective, Dr. Ori, what is your research telling you as far as our relationship in racial issues between in, internally? So Dr. Tarver, you first and then Dr. Ori to you, please. I don't. Wow. Um, I, I to to go back to just internalized racism, sexism, um, disparaging views of of people that identify as gay or queer. Um, I, that that young man um, has received a lot of negative information that, and he has now become the person who is sharing this negative information with other people. Now I'm attacking my own people. Mm. Um, I've heard that, you know, and I don't, I, I can't again speak on, I don't know him. I don't know what he grew up with. I don't know his situation, but I, I will just start with that, that piece um, of tearing down gay men. Um, I, you don't have to tear another person down in order for you uh, to be attractive. And, and again, I think that's a construct that comes from these institutionalized um biases and, and, and beliefs that come out of this this uh, racist pedagogy that we're, we're peddled um, growing up. We don't even realize that it's all around us, um, that that you are um, you are weak, you are inferior uh, gay male, um, you are um, you are beneath, you are less than you are less than a human already, but you are less than a man specifically. Uh, and so now that he has now he's spewing that hatred that he probably heard someone say and in an effort to, and y'all can get me all off on a tangent, I'm gonna try to stay focused, uh, in an effort to, and this is this is one of my challenges that I experience in my work, in an effort to sometimes make sure that our men are able to handle all of the things that life throws at them. We feel like we have to over-masculinize mm. them. Um, that, that you now cannot, um, if it, you know, it, look at your wrist. How's your wrist looking? Don't switch. Don't. Um, you can't. Uh, why do you want that pink soccer ball? You can't uh, play dress up. You can't play with your sister and her dolls. That that a lot of men still believe. I had a friend tell me um, just a few weeks ago that he stopped two little boys in a bank. You know, how they give you the little dum dum lollipops. Stopped two little boys in the bank for sucking on these lollipops saying you don't you you break that stick off you don't suck on that dum dum with that stick um and i was what? like what? what uh right right but but again uh this and he's like that and and he said the grandmother said and that's why that's why they so soft right now somebody needs to talk to them oh, like that yeah. no they don't um but that just goes to show and i think sometimes particularly in the in the south where we grow up here in uh sissy and faggot and um he she and all of these negative mm. things that we internalize them and then we begin to again spew this information to other people and we think we're 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 helping people or we think that that means that we're we're somehow 
in a better space than this and then I, I need to tear you down and, and I don't but again I've learned that so I've internalized that and that's what I've I become that that critical person now and and the same thing with with uh, men who have been incarcerated um, there is no reason for you to bring up a man who has been incarcerated we all know uh, that a lot of us haven't been incarcerated because we just never caught that we did a lot of things over our lifetime that had somebody had cameras around or had somebody had Facebook or, or Instagram or something then and viewed us that we could be facing charges right now. And we know that we're more likely to have harsher sentences if we get convicted. So why knowing that, knowing that we have a, a system in place that that is as um, unfair and, and is not an adequate way to to handle when people make choices. And I, and I again, don't condone people um, killing people or, or raping people. I don't, I don't want to minimize at all that sometimes people do awful, despicable, hurtful, malicious things. But but a lot of our people who have been incarcerated, a lot of our brothers who have been incarcerated, uh, oftentimes were simply incarcerated because of their the eth- their ethnicity, the color of their skin, mm-hmm. because of where their case was 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 tried. And so for him to and, and as a as a person who's about to be an attorney, who is about to get licensed, who is about to so you are going to take that venom that you have, and then what kind of attorney are you going to be? What what are you going to do of more harm? to us because you've internalized these negative perceptions uh, and the fact that you need to on a public forum toot your own horn uh, makes me really feel like you got some insecurities because honestly if 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 I'm walking in my purpose if I feel good about the skin I am I'm in if I am doing things that give me meaning if I have, have achieved these goals then I don't need to put anyone down like I'm going to get to work Hey y'all, I'm about to I'm about to take this this bar. Uh, pray for me, or or and send me some send me some positive energy. That's gonna be the it, the end of it. But the fact that he did that, yeah, somebody hurt you, and I don't know who hurt you. I don't know if it was another woman. I don't know if somebody before you got these degrees told you you were nobody or didn't give you the time of day. I don't I don't know what all of that's about. But that that's some pain there, and there's some internalized racism there. There's some internalized uh, we don't even use the word homophobia anymore. But there's some internalized negative views about people who identify as gay males or bisexual males, for that matter. Uh, and, and he is now going to have a platform by which to hurt other people because he was hurt somewhere in his journey. And I'm going to get off my no, I, I, I know there was a lot to unpack, Dr. Tark, but I appreciate you, you, you trying, you know, and I love the redemptive spirit. Um, um, that, that, that we as African-Americans seem to have collectively is that from a collective experience that I've experienced is that we have a redemptive spirit. So this is not a shot on Mr. CJ or, or, or whatever his, his real name is. I don't know it. Um, and so maybe there's a lot of value to be learned from this and, 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 and maybe pray tell that it's great that it's happening now and that he doesn't have the power of, uh, as me as a retired prosecutor or the power of of, of me as a future judge, uh, you know, having that pop, that power, and he's now conditioned to to make statements on people's lives, and and maybe this is a great opportunity to learn because I, I still believe in the redemptive spirit. And Dr. Ori, what, what what is your take on it from a you know uh, scientific research perspective? What are you seeing? Well, uh, you know, I won't. I'll, I'll just mention this 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 concept, but won't. You know, expound on. I think Dr. Tarbin did a, a great job uh, 
um, discussing it, but toxic masculinity is the first thing that comes to mind. And I, and I know that there's been some debate, you know, over that concept. Uh, but then another thing that comes to mind is, you know, actually throughout this conversation, it's 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 been, you know, popping up in my head because I've been reading this book today and I thought I had notes here, but uh, I guess I erased them. Um, mm. Black Rage, mm. you know, by Green mm. Cobbs in the, in the 1960s, you know, they were among the first to, you know, really, really link our current behavior mm. to slavery. And, you know, they make a real, real linear um, presentation of how, you know, quite a bit of, you know, our behavior uh, is linked directly to slavery. Now, I know that, you know, there's um, the book out, Post-Traumatic Slave mm-hmm. Syndrome, but but, but but Black Rage really, really gets at a lot of that. And among that is, you know, so let me just back back and look at it from the scientific perspective as it relates to racial attitudes. So we talk about internalized resentment, internalized racism. Black people are not a monolith. We know that. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll play double advocate with people and I'll say, who, who are you referring to when you say we? And so the black community, like, who is the black community? If, if there are these um, cross-cutting or, or these uh, contours and dimensions on black ideology, you know, if one is progressive, he or she has to be, you know, protective of who he or she brings into a space. Because, you know, people have this double consciousness, you know, in one vein, you know, they may have a strong um, identity with other African Americans. They may have a strong racial identity, but because they've internalized these negative stereotypes and then therefore project them onto Mm. others who look like them, um, black race, they discuss that specifically, that you've been hurt, just like Dr. Tarver said, you've been hurt and so now, when you're in a position of power, you hurt those who actually look like you because you're powerless. And so you have no power to confront America or to tame America. And so the folk that you have power over, and that's why, you know, you know, people say that black people can't be racist. I said that black people who have power can have internalized racism toward their own. And so, um, you know, Black people aren't a monolith, and you know, folks can have strong racial identities, or they can possess a resentment. You know, I, I, you know, it, it's not hard pressed to find someone who will have negative racial attitudes toward people on welfare. Uh, they need to get out, and get a job. They're just lazy, um, so on and so forth. Uh, I've done research in that area, so for years. I conducted research looking at what we call racial resentment in political science. And I've been doing this for about 20 years. When I was at the University of New Orleans, I started looking at some data sets that included items that were meant for white people. And so they were meant to detect white, the new white racism that white people had. And that is this notion that blacks do not subscribe to the process and work ethic. Uh, in tandem with this negative black affection or disaffection that they have toward black people. Well, you know, I applied them to blacks since blacks were asked the questions, the same questions. And what do you know? Uh, you all are from, or you all have spent time in Louisiana. You remember Cleo Fields. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that 
those individuals who had some negative um, perspectives about Cleo Field also harbored resentment toward other black people. And so they believed that black folks didn't try hard enough. They believed that the Irish and the Jews and the Italians pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and blacks to do the same. And you know, you also see this with the implicit association test. You know, a lot of students, when I have them take the test, um, they find that they are not as, you know, strongly biased with blacks than they think they are. Many of them have negative biases toward black and pro biases toward whites. Uh, so that may have taken us, you know, away from. No, it takes us. You're taking us back to for it. So, look, this, this this thing that we're doing is not designed to to kind of cookie cutter and come up with these quick answers. These are deeper. What Dr. Tarvin and I think we've created is a space where we can come to a holistic wellness answer, like a, a legitimate answer that we can put out to say, listen, here's a way, here's a plan to encourage you as as our listener to have your wholeness, your wellness, your gain, you know, goal attainment. This is designed to do that. And that's exactly what you guys are doing. I feel like a kid in a candy store and I'm just absorbing knowledge here. Uh, this is this is fascinating to see brilliant minds have this discussion you from your you know this research attitude uh you know you you brought up an amazing point about this racial resentment but i want to pivot us a little bit because there are some mixed opinions regarding the importance of of, of people voting one of the things that's happening right now getting into the election year for a lot of people uh, a lot of people electing mayors a lot of people electing uh, Congress people and the president of the United States will be elected this year. Uh, most recently in the in the kind of black Twitter verse and Twitter verse and Instagram verse. Um, Sean P. Diddy Cone Puffy um, announced that he was putting a stipulation on his voting for Biden. Essentially that the Democrats had to come to the table and announce that they were going to do this collectively for disenfranchised, specifically blacks. Uh, he, he he alluded to, and not citing anything to quote uh, for you today, uh, Dr. Worry, but he, he's alluding to that we can't wholesale as, a, as a, even though we're not monolithic, we are we are a base that, that the Democrats collectively, since the switch from the re- Republican, which were to the you know, to conservative versus the new social Democrats, this this concept that until they guaranteed they were going to do certain things, that they were going to do real action solving problems that would would create an avenue to upward mobility uh, for African-Americans to guarantee certain the enforcement of certain inalienable rights essentially is what I took from uh, Mr. Combs. Um, and, and, and he's free to come on our show, Dr. Tiber, I think to expound on his point if he disagrees with what I received from his, uh, this is what I encoded from his message. So with, with this important year for voting, uh, does our voice really matter uh, from you? Are you finding that? Do we feel our voice really matters? Does our voice really matter? What happens when we do not make an informed decision on voting because of race or gender or appearance or our families vote and don't vote at all, you know, either whether we vote or don't vote at all. How, how do you perceive that, Dr. Ori? So, um, you know, this this really reminds me of an a incident that I had. 
I was doing a summer program in Washington, D.C., and there was a, a state legislator, a former state legislator, who uh, worked in Alabama, uh, in the Alabama legislature. And, you know, we were having a conversation. He's an activist. And he was working with the AFL-CIO at the time. And so I said, well, you know, uh, black people in the Mississippi Delta are extremely apathetic. So how do we address that? And so he blessed me. I mean, he really blessed me. I, I can still feel it. I, mean, I know his name, Tony Harrison. And so he said that, look, people who don't know are not apathetic. Hmm. Apathetic suggests that, you know, people know. And so when you talk about voting, uh, when people have lived in an impoverished life all of their life, they've never seen anything but that. And so we've had eight years of President Barack Obama. They haven't seen any movement on the dial as it relates to, you know, their upward mobility. And so for these people, they have become disillusioned. And if we, you know, take the state of Mississippi, where in the last election, uh, or the election prior to that, we had uh, Mike Espy, an African-American candidate running for Senate. Uh, and the woman made a statement saying that she would be on the front row of a hanging mm -hmm. if this particular uh, supporter asked her to. And even though she made that statement, she won the election, but there was a slight margin of defeat for Espy. I think it was the highest that you know a candidate had come in you know in recent years about four or five percent difference but the point i'm making is that instead of doing a lot of voter registration we got a lot we we got enough people registered mm. we need to get out the vote in those areas where people aren't voting and i don't have the answer but the politicians need to find the answer in terms of what that message needs to be for example when Joe Biden came to Mississippi, he went to the affluent black church. And so the affluent people were there. They're going to vote and they're going to vote for him. That's a given. So why not go to the Mississippi Delta in, area, in areas where um, you've had, you know, structural institutional racism forever and it's diluted the black vote? Um, you know, these are strategies that people need to be thinking about you know benny thompson was there you know as you know the congressman um and that's his that's his district in the mississippi delta but you know by going to that particular church you know you really don't gain anything in terms of trying to in, in, increase the, the the turnout i mean this is a red this is a deep red state but it doesn't have to be i mean there are so not all white people vote <laughs> Right. Believe it or not. Right. <laughs> so if they're not voting in the maximum, and then if you can increase, you know, the black vote, and black folks are turning out to vote now, uh, but if we can increase more blacks um, to vote, at least in this case, you know, it'd be Democrat, then, you know, it, there may be an opportunity to at least turn purple. Now, to the point about, you know, Pub Daddy and, you know, some of the state woke folk uh, from the last election, candidates have to run what we call, they use the median voter theorem. And so they have to run as close to the middle as possible. That's Democratic candidates now. 
because we know Trump didn't run to the middle. Mm-hmm. Trump ran to the right and he won. And so I was of the mindset, well, Democrats just need to run to the left and get their base and get everyone else to, you know, side with them. But that's not the case because not everyone leans to the left. They lean more to the right, right if anything, in terms mm-hmm. of other demographics. And so when these candidates run to the middle, then they have to play Kate or you know, they have to appeal to both sides of a very, very uh, polarized, you know, demographic of voters. Blacks, whites, uh, Latinx can, you know, kind of be in the middle somewhat when you start taking into consideration Florida. Um, and so the message, you'll really have to talk out of both sides of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, if you have a platform that's overwhelmingly, you know, focusing on black issues, you'll get the black vote, but black folks are not but 14% of the country. You know, right. of, of the, and then even less when you start looking at the voting age population, and even less when you start looking at registration, and even less when you look at turnout. And so people have to be strategic. In this particular case with the President of the United States, you know, I mean, we know what we have and what we don't want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at who you really want in office relative to who you have and you know sometimes you have to make the sacrifice and you know go with the less of two evils um you know there have been cases where you know for example bailing out the the uh the 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 automobile automobile industry in detroit you know those were jobs that black folks had for years and so you know when obama did that and you know you look at current president, I mean, it's clear that he's an elitist in terms of uh, who he, uh, you know, focuses on in terms of, you know, the policies that he he promotes. But there needs to be a coalescing also of Latinx people and Black people. Um, You know, not all Blacks are progressive when it comes to Latinx people. Some of them see them as a threat. And, you know, anecdotally, I can see that. You know, I have a cousin um, who paints. And, you know, I found uh, one guy who's Latinx who gave me a cheaper price and equal quality. Well, you know, that posed a threat to my cousin. And so that creates a resentment, the same type of resentment that blacks or whites harbor toward blacks because of the threat that blacks pose toward them. And so when you start looking at all these you know, diverse populations and demographics that the Democratic Party has, that's tough, man, to try to keep all those folks together. You know, we were talking about uh, homophobia. You know, black folks are from the South, and, you know, black folks in general are the highest or the most religious people in terms of going to church in the country. You know, that's what the data show. And so because in the church, um, you know, the conservatism is vehemently opposed to homosexuality, then now you don't have homosexuals or, or the gay lesbian community. They're not coalescing with blacks and blacks are not coalescing with them. And so you have these deep divides that fracture within the Democratic Party. Whereas the, 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 even though there may be some diversity in the Republican Party, uh, they do have their eyes on the prize and they're pretty homogenous uh, in terms of one white supremacy. Mm-hmm and maintaining that white supremacy. 
Wow. And then that internally, well, I guess as a result of that results in is that these deep divides, the lack of uh, coalition and, and coalescing uh, to the greater thought, and that's driving the fracture and and demotivating, demotivating people even get out. Like what's going to muster your energy uh, to get out to actually vote and pull the trigger to actually prioritize the actual voting? Is that what you're seeing, Dr. Tarver? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the, yeah, like I think some of the challenges, um, and and, and I I have a lot of um, clients of mine that don't vote. Um, And, and, you know, some of them say their voice doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. Um, As Dr. Ori was saying, um, certain states, certain certain southern states are um, red states. Um, People are very clear about, hey, this state, is the the pattern is for the the votes to go this way so why why bother um and 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 i like your point dr ori about it it's not necessarily that it's apathy it is just a lack of of understanding it's a lack of connection um to to why this would be important for me to do why why does this matter as opposed to me working um a 12-hour shift to try to take care of my family why does this matter uh, in terms of me going to get um, um, my my elderly grandmother out of her house uh, to come out and, and go to this this polling place where where she may be um, treated uh, in very negative ways, like what what is my 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 motivation to to actually participate in this when I know that I can't go necessarily get a loan if I want to go get a loan if I if I know that um, if I want to start a business that I'm going to run into. Um, the good old boy system here in the South. If I know that we, we, uh, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Ori, um, that, that some of our college age students there, uh, and, and, and particularly like, particularly at HBCUs, um, have more racial identity pride, um, in, in, in their ethnicity, uh, here in Georgia, um, made national news, Stacey Abrams, um, ran in an election and she lost to Brian Kemp. Now, now, of course, uh, Kemp, uh, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't have been able to run and still serve as Secretary of State, where he got into um, the the practice of being able to get in bed, if you will, with these business owners, um, because that's who you go through to get your business's license. And so those are people who backed his campaign. Uh, and then, of course, the problems with... Um, the election policies and and people being dropped, not even knowing they were being dropped, going to vote and not being able to vote because they didn't realize they had been dropped um, from the roster. So there's just so many different layers of issues that are related to that. And so I want to, you know, I'm aware that we're um, getting long in time. So one of our purposes, of course, is that we leave people with things that are um, small steps that they can take or things that they can do, directions they can move in, in order to address. We we talked about a variety of issues from cultural disparities to, to racial identity, um, to internalized um, negative attributes to, to, um, to, to politics and voting. But if there were some things, and I'll post this to both of you, if there were some things that you could leave our, our listeners with, um, here is something that you can put on your action plan. We know that we cannot change all the ills of the world uh, but every step that we take matters what are some things that you all would want our viewers to take away from this podcast 
Well, education. <laughs> so I, I, I keep going back to education, and I think that's the linchpin of a lot of evils that exist in this country. And so, um, you know, you mentioned Stacey Abrams, and Stacey Abrams is really big on uh, maintaining the vote and strengthening the vote and minimizing disenfranchisement. So when you talk about education as it relates to voting, I'll use the case of, you know, felon disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. where, you know, ex-felons are not given the opportunity to vote. But in a place like Mississippi, it's not all ex-felons. It's those who made or committed certain crimes. And so I, you know, I had a relative who said that, you know, he saw the woman who worked at the poll and she said, why haven't you been coming down to the precinct to vote? He said, well, I'm, you know, ex-felon. She said, your name is on the roster, you know, come and vote. So he didn't realize that he mm. still had his right to vote. Mm. Also, as it relates to, you know, this issue of attitudes and the negative racial attitudes that not only whites have, but blacks have amongst themselves, education again. Um, we're now trying to put together a, a module on implicit bias and, you know, police training to minimize the negative racial attitudes that police have toward blacks. And I think this could be across the board, whether it be in a mm-hmm. textbook, um, mm-hmm. as it relates to the school system in terms of trying. So when you when you increase racial identity, you constrain those negative racial attitudes. Mm-hmm. And so as one goes up from that double consciousness model, when one goes up, the other one actually tends to go down or has less of an impact if you strengthen it. And so, you know, when you, so for example, you know, if you, if, if, if you see why black folks aren't voting in Mississippi uh, and you trace the fact that as soon as the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, in 1966, they went in and they redrew the districts. You redraw the district every 10 years, not every six years. Mm-hmm. But immediately after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, they went in and drew the districts so that black folks who were the majority in the Mississippi Delta, and there was a district where they could have won, they gerrymandered the district so black folks could not win until 1986. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about going from Reconstruction in the 1860s, 1870s, black folks had not elected anyone to a uh, state position uh, or federal position since, you know, Reconstruction. And it was 1986, which is not too far away. So for me, it's education. When you um, inform, you know, individuals of the past, because, you know, the books now sanitize the past. Um, and, you know, the books are, you know, really kind of moving a colorblind in a colorblind direction. I mean, there were books in in, in, in in Texas and Pearson, one of the biggest book companies actually endorses, I mean, it was one of their books. It says that uh, black workers. people were workers. <laughs> mm. And that, you know, they were almost like immigrants. And this would have actually, this would have actually gotten through with this woman wouldn't have gone viral when she saw her son's textbook. And so, you know, that can, you know, the, the fact that she had that on on, 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 on on social media and it created contagion. But no, education for me is the key in almost all of these areas. And, you know, it's gonna take progressive people 
to push, and the only way we can push in some instances is to vote. Well, I, I think, um, you know, from my perspective, uh, Dr. Tarvers, I think we got to live in our true genius. We got to live in our spaces, and we got to collectively come to one one agreement. Until the until this country uh, can truly become post-racial, my my perspective is a hundred years from now. Because in 2020, we just made unanimity of jury. We've connected that dot when it was two states that did not do it in the Supreme Court of the United States. SCOTUS agreed on a hard fact that it was based in one thing, racism. And it was based on slavery and racism and newfound uh, black electorate. So they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then until it changes, which I'm saying now set forth 100 years, just like slavery allegedly ended in 1865, and then, as Dr. Ori talked about, in 1965, all of this in 1964, 1965, and 1966, these acts that were created to empower Black folks. A hundred years later, 2020, I'm saying a hundred years after this. So the, the, the first thing that until that happens, African-Americans that are slave descendants, irrespective of other African-Americans come on board, the African, you know, people of Black, biracial whatever irrespective they come on board typically have got to become somewhat uh monolithic uh we have got to become certain things are true principles every white person i know doesn't agree every uh hispanic i know latinx uh rather doesn't agree i wrote a book on cuba and so south florida is a whole new animal from all other latinx so don't let that that's not determined in Texas, certain Texas uh, um, um, uh, Mex- uh, Mexican of ter- uh, uh, Texans of Mexican descent have a different viewpoint that would shock the rest of us. And then the, the all of the, the different Latinx experience is totally different. And so we have to be careful, but certain things are hard truth. We have to believe in the things that we believe collectively because they support our ultimate goal. Uh, we know reasons that African-American have been shot, whether it's Skittles or um, uh, jogging most recently here from Skittles to jog. Um, we know that African-Americans are being shot unarmed. African-Americans are being shot without the people being prosecuted for shooting them, for selling CDs and, and driving or what the litany of reasons uh, that African-Americans have been shot and and. Um, by people who were in position of law enforcement or people calling themselves uh, being afraid or whatever reason. But that should put you at edge because your son, your brother, your sister is African-American and they're going to experience this the same. So the experience should make you at some point believe certain part of myself has to be monolithic, irrespective of my religion, irrespective of where I live, irrespective of my income bracket. That part has to be monolithic. And the second part of that, um, that, that the takeaway that I think that we can offer uh, past the monolithic and the key points, the key components of our experience in this country is the, the next part is we have to do our best work in our field. Your research has to be true 
uh, Dr. Ori, and you have to allow us to get access to it as, as a people and how it benefits us. What is the takeaway from us? And we've got to get that out to broad, massive dissemination because the people have to have the power to have the real troops. Dr. Tarver, we have to break down barriers, break down walls to let people know that they have to live in a space that it's okay to go get help from a psychiatrist, psychologist. Mental health is real wealth. That if we don't get that, we're gonna hurt ourselves even more. And then holistically, break down some of these weak barriers of going, you know, what this does uh, and what people are when they find themselves. You said it earlier, Dr. Tarver, African-Americans who have gone to prison, we now we know the real difference. The difference in some cases is you didn't get caught or you didn't get caught up. You didn't get caught with, you know, uh, for whatever you may have done, a person may have done. And then part two is that wherever you did it, you didn't get over-policed or over-sentenced with some guidelines that are draconian that put you in a position where you're now doing 200 years for for what somebody else is doing uh, uh, probation. So uh, I think those are the takeaways that I would offer. Uh, start looking at the things that are that are singularly focused, that are collectively able, take that collective experience and, and, and take it out. And then to follow up with it, that uh, we've got to be best in our fields and spread that, that, that greatness about. As you always tell me, Dr. Tarver, uh, go ahead in your greatness. And, and so we got to live in that. So I, I would take that. Um, and, and I want to say again, Dr. Ori, you have been a blessing to be on this show. I know this show to our listeners has been a lot longer than we normally go, but it was so much to unpack. Hell, that could be three more shows that we could do on this. But Dr. Dr. Ori, thank you so much for coming on this show and doing this with us. Now, can is hey, there a way that uh, people can see some of your research, or can you point them in the direction that we can get access to some of your articles, uh, whether it's at Jackson State or or any place that people can get access to some of your your articles? I, I okay, do. all right, good. <laughs> all right, so 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 I mean, you know, like, you know, that, that's got kind of a potential. Somebody, you know, you tell somebody would Google me, and, but no. Um, uh, uh, many of them are online, so many folk wouldn't be like um, LinkedIn to ResearchGate. But I think that when you Google the articles that are in ResearchGate, then you know they pop up uh, as a PDF. Uh, but quite a bit of them are out there as PDFs. Are you doing speaking engagements at various uh, institutions where people can reach out and say, "Hey, we want them to be our keynote," or um, do you uh, any of that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do quite a bit of speaking engagement. Typically okay. in the month of February. And, and how do our listeners reach out to you? Is, is they're listening? How do, we, how do I reach out to, to find access to you? Yeah, um, anybody, hey, email me. Um, you know, I welcome all emails. It's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, period, D as in dog, period, O-R-E-Y, Ori, at... JSU, Jackson State University, JSUMS.edu. That's Byron.d.ori at JSUMS.edu. And that's um, that, like he said, that's Byron.d.ori, um, O R E Y, at JSUMS.edu. Um, and we've been so lucky.
I'm sorry. J, uh, J, JSU MS. JSU MS. Dot edu. Uh, we're we're yeah. so lucky to uh, have him on. He's been a great inspiration. Uh, I've just been essentially a visitor. Dr. Tarver, uh, was there anything you'd like to offer us in closing? Um, in closing, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, all of us are able to create hate-free zones, whether we're pastors at churches and we don't, we don't um, allow hate to come from the pulpit or, or be manifest in our church where we're at schools and we're on school boards or we're um, school parents and we hold schools accountable to not having hate in curriculums uh, where if we are uh, in places to be on um, job search committees where we target people uh, that we know will include our diversity, uh, whether we put signs up in our neighborhoods that, hey, this is a hate-free area and we won't tolerate any hatred over in our neighborhood like all of us can do just small steps um put put something on your social media page put a sign up in your office to let people know that they're in a hate-free zone and it's a safe space um for for people of of all backgrounds and ethnicities as we work uh toward the goals that you all mentioned and i i I thank you for that dr tarver and again dr tarver thank you for of course always carrying this show dr ori thank you for being a magnificent guest uh And we have been uh, discussing uh, politics and COVID-19 pandemic. And what we did is we delved into a deeper uh, dive into the disparities, uh, racial disparities that exist. And when our guest today was Dr. Byron DeAndre Ori, uh, this concludes this episode of In Our Own Defense. We're your hosts, Attorney A.D. Winters and Dr. Dolores Tarver. For more information on our podcast, please follow us on social media at Instagram. That's In Our Own Defense. And our email at inourowndefense at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Five, four, three, two, one.